Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next hour is devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, as my pretty bride insists I always add, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded and a time for those willing to question what they think they know or what they may believe, those willing to be uncertain for an hour. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. And my partner, Ravinder, is here in the studio with me, looking as lovely as ever. So say hello to everyone, Rav, and share some of your special insight for the day. Well, hello, everybody. I'm so glad that you can join us. Special insight for the day. Right here, it's bright and sunny, and sun's good for you because that helps you boost those happy chemicals. So <clears throat> if where you are, it's sunny, go out and enjoy it. Um, yeah, and I don't insist on shoes and ships and seeding wax, but I do have to confess it makes me smile every time, and I don't know why. It must just be the child in me. I think, actually, it comes to the first time I heard it, shoes and ships and seeding wax. I thought seeding was the ceiling above your head, and it's like, what? Okay, okay, but it's cute, and it's fun, and we should all smile and stuff like that. All right, in this week's Spotlight, I would once again like to visit the idea of civility in our society. My lifetime has never seen a divide such as we see in America today. Um, people no longer seem to listen to one another. Instead, they meet opposing views as though they were personally threatened with a violent confrontation. I sometimes think of this inability to hear another out as a form of social narcissism in that everyone has their own opinions, beliefs, and so-called truths, and they're exclusive to all else. Indeed, folks can be so invested in their private perspective as to be affronted by anyone who might disagree in the slightest with them. Narcissism is defined as extreme selfishness, with a grandiose view of one's own talents and a craving for admiration. Now think about just, just how selfish it is to ignore the views of others, to cut people off mid-sentence, or to jump down someone's throat as soon as they say something you disagree with. Steven Pinker, in his book The Blank Slate, The Modern Denial of Human Nature, has this to say about human conflicts, quote, It has been given to express all the principal constants of conflict in the condition of man. These constants are fivefold. The confrontation of men and women, of age and of youth, of society and of individual, of the living and the dead, of men and of gods. The conflicts which come of these five orders of confrontation are not negotiable. Men and women, old and young, the individual and the community or state, the quick and the dead, mortals and immortals, define themselves in the conflictual process of defining each other. Close quote. 
I would like to suggest that there appears to be yet another basic conflict, and that is one of ideas. It is not between men and women, young and old, society and the individual, the living and the dead, or even the gods. It is a conflict between rational and ignorant civility. Ignorant civility is certainly an oxymoron. But in fact, just this past week, I overheard a politically passionate young man defend calling out Trump supporters in public places, calling them out in front of their families and everyone else since they were obviously Nazis. And Nazis deserve to be identified and humiliated, even if it leads to violent actions like spitting. Research has demonstrated that the best way to communicate with another person begins by hearing them out, fleshing out their thoughts and ideas. Only when you understand another's thinking do you stand a chance at communicating with them let alone presenting an alternative to their thinking. If you want to change the hearts and minds of others, you must first truly listen, not shout, cajole, and condemn. I ask, what's the harm in listening to another perspective? It seems to me that the purpose of communication is communicating, not shouting, name-calling, or some other form of abusive ignorance. If you wish to shout, go to the ball game and yell your heart out in support of your favorite team. If you wish to communicate, to understand another, then begin by listening. As I view many of the posts on social networking platforms, the polemical remarks on both sides of arguments never cease to disturb me. I urge everyone who participates in vitriolic rants to pause and think about trying to communicate. We are, after all, one people, governed in one nation, with a government that serves all. Those are my thoughts. I'd love to hear yours. There you have it, Ravinder. What do you think? Actually, your comment just shocked me, but I suppose it shouldn't have, you know, this idea that... Trump supporters should be called out and deserve to be humiliated. It's like we're just under 50% of those people who voted <laughs> were voting for Trump this time. Are we really going to be attacking half the nation? 70 million people. That it makes no sense at all. Either side of the aisle, calling out anyone on either side. It's like, that's just crazy. That's not how we unite. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, it's not. But, you know, I think it's important to talk. So what is this just under 50% of the people? What were they thinking about when they voted? Why? What What needs is it that they have that isn't being met? Um, it, it's significant. We're not looking at, you know, 5%, 2%, 10%. You're looking at right really close to 50 i mean it's Half the just nation. a tiny bit in between so no i would say all of that stuff needs to end and today's subject matter just becomes really important having civility hearing hearing someone actually paying attention to them don't throw out names like nazis and snowflakes and enough enough i would just ask everyone to join us and say enough so find someone at the opposite side of the political aisle to you and Talk to them. Talk. Listen. Communicate. 
That's and, where healing will happen. And there is your bright word for the day. Enough. <laughs> Just enough. You know? All right. Every week I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Our last show featured Professor Kim Cameron, and we discussed his working book, Practicing Positive Leadership. And once again, it's a great read, and I highly recommend it. Brian wrote, he, referring to our guest, makes me realize that I have downgraded my personal definition of high health or health success as staying healthy, but not necessarily feeling greatly robust. Though I still feel my personal standard for mental balance, peace is one with a standard I still strive to achieve every day. We can all do better. You know, the fact is we do tend to think that, well, I'm not sick. So everything's okay. But but there's a whole lot more to that. How about I'm just joyful and jubilant and I'm going to find good in everything and I'm going to have a wonderful day. Right, Rev? Yeah, no, I think that's perfect. You're right. We do just uh, tend to think, well, I'm I'm not sick, so therefore I'm okay. But why not make it better? Go for it. I like that. Joni wrote, I bought Professor Cameron's book. I wanted more details on the virtuous leadership style. It's a great idea. I agree, Joni. Mike wrote, downloaded the show with Kim Cameron, and it is on my provocative enlightenment radio file, which is part of my ongoing education. It is important to always keep learning to grow forward. Moving on, Johanna wrote, I would like to thank you for writing the book. What does that mean? It helped me a lot to think more and deeper than before. I read it once just as a normal book, and after a while I read it again because I knew I had to. In doing that, I discovered questions I had and or I got some answers to some of my own. Thank you for that. Well, thank you, Johanna. Lisa wrote, Hi, Eldon. I love your work. I've used your InterTalk programs for years. And as a therapist, recommend your products to clients frequently. And Jelly wrote, I used your InterTalk programs very successfully to point to the point of my clients keeping your materials. You saved my sanity while in the hospital playing your InterTalk CD. Well, I'm accustomed to that, Jelly. You can lend them to them and they never come back. All right, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but please keep your comments coming. We do sincerely appreciate your feedback. You can opine by sending me an email to Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at eldontaylor.com, or by joining me on Facebook at Dr. Eldon Taylor. Now to today's show, The Path of Civility with Robert Sachs. So let me tell you a little about today's guest. Robert Sachs was born in Cleveland, Ohio. He started his college years at Case Western Reserve University, but then moved to England where he lived and studied. Along with a more conventional educational route, Robert began to study with Tibetan Buddhist masters and embarked on a study of Asian healing systems. He received his BA in Comparative Religion and Sociology at the University of Lancaster and then moved to London where he studied macrobiotics at the Kushi Institute and Hatha Yoga under the guidance of Jonathan O'Dell and Johanna Ald, while also being trained as a mental health counselor with the Richmond Fellowship. As an adult student in the United States, Robert went on to receive a massage license from Central Ohio School of Massage 
and a master's in social work at the University of Kentucky. With an educational background and training that is as conventional as it is alternative, Robert continues to work as a licensed clinical social worker, massage therapist, and author. So on that, let's get him in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Mr. Robert Sachs. Alden, thank you very much for having me. Well, that's a pleasure, sir. I enjoyed your book. I wasn't even aware that George Washington had written anything on the path of civility. So I found it really enlightening and, and engaging at the same time. Listen, sir, we like to learn three things from our guests on this show. What is the message? Who is the messenger? And, of course, how do we use that information? So to that end, please share with us what you're personally passionate about and why. Well, I'm very much wanting to see people wake up as best they can in a way that basically allows them to serve others in this global world that we live in. And so in that regard, I have devoted myself to studying in terms of health, those things which allow people to take care of themselves in the best possible way. And especially because in the all oriental systems, what they say is mind precedes body. And therefore those systems that really look at the mind science of understanding and being able to transform our habits into useful ways of action and compassion. And in many respects, when you hear about Tibetan Buddhism or Buddhism itself, many people think of it as being a religion, but it's more of a mind science than it is a religion. I I like the uh, term that Robert Thurman used of people becoming psychonauts, where you actually uh, basically try to really penetrate the way in which you develop preconceptions, uh, ways in which you can break through those preconceptions. And then, in a, a way of understanding how hard that is, using a compassionate and kind approach to support others doing the same, which basically are the essence of civility. Yeah, no kidding. I've always liked the term psychonaut, N-A-U-T, as in astronaut, you know, just traveling in the mind. Um, you heard today's spotlight, Robert. What have I got wrong? Um, I don't think you have anything wrong, uh, really, in what you were saying. I I reflect on it in a, in a way, Alden, that um, the really, I mean, I look at the teachings of the historical Buddha who made predictions of this time period. And in this time period, he talked about a time when there would be so much distraction uh, in the mind uh, being clouded. And as a result of that cloudiness, there would become all sorts of levels of suffering. And usually when our minds are cloudy and our bodies aren't feeling very good, we become more and more self-centered. And so what happens is I actually think that this self-centeredness is actually a symptom of a time period where, uh, in many respects, what's going on is there's a level of confusion which has sort of expanded in a time period that really challenges us at a physiological and psychological level. In many respects, I look at the uh, what people are doing in terms of the sort of the divide, and actually, I'm looking at the, well, we can think of uh, the divide 
as being an opportunity of something like a civil war if you want to go in that way. Or what I looked at in terms of this current election was that those with progressive thoughts had an opportunity to understand that the other side of the coin was just as numbered in terms of people. And that it demands that there is attention to what is going on. That when people are fearful, when people are worried about their survival, when people are worried about how to take care of themselves or others, they become more myopic. And when somebody says, hey, I've got the solution and I'm going to give you everything you want or bring you back to a time when things were great again, um, what people wish they could do is go back to something as a way of going forward. And that never works. And it's like the saying, don't look back unless you want to go that way. So to me, what it is, is there is a uh, what we need to understand is that a lot of this is being driven by fear and insecurity. And I think that uh, what we have to be aware of in this is that if we are going to move forward with more progressive ideas, which I do believe we need simply because of the fact that the solutions for so many of the problems are global solutions. They can't just happen in the United States or just one particular corner of the world. So many of these things are so interconnected. I call it the ooze of fusion. That is where we are at. And in many respects, the election reflected um, that this ooze of fusion is what is going on, is unstoppable. But we can't deny history. We can't uh, necessarily turn away from what has worked in the past as if it's just bogus or no good. We need to be able to learn from history rather than live in history. And in that regard, I really implore uh, the people that are more progressive to, as you're describing, and I talk about them as being the five, um, five steps of wise action. The first step of wise action, as I elucidate into my book, is to step back. It's like what you said when, when, when your, uh, your other guest, I think her name is Ravinder, was saying about enough. Part of the enough is in our mind saying, okay, I'm going to stop right now and step back. I'm going to then, what I will then do is I will assess. I will use my critical thinking skills to see what actually is going on. Once I actually see what is going on, then I need to know how much I am a part of that situation. And so much of what happens is that people are doing the, 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 the blame game and they don't understand what their part in the problem is. So the third step is really sort of like having an introspective moment where we need to actually go, okay, how have I contributed to this mess? Whether it is at the level of our consumption or the level of our attitudes, how much am I contributing to the impasse? The next step then is, once I understand that, I become more aware that everybody's got their part in it, and therefore we have to be able to reach out. And that is the next step, is being able to reach out to others. 
But also this, and this is something that Washington saw, but is also very much a part of Buddhism. Uh, the idea in Buddhism that you have the idea of uh, everybody has got awakening potential. Everybody does. Everybody has that. And at the same time, in terms of May, uh, Washington, Washington was a Freemason. And in his Freemasonry, what is taught is that we need, in order to really solve problems, we need to treat everybody on the level. There's nobody above us. There's nobody below us. If we're going to solve these things, there's got to be a sense of mutuality. So that mutuality is the next or the fourth step before we then decide to enact any solution we have. And I do believe on the, what's going on is that a lot of the solutions we have become so much richer, if not just one side of the divide is coming up with a solution. Amen. Amen. I, I, I want to get further into your book in greater detail in a minute, but I have a few questions related to civility first, if you don't mind. Uh, last week, Professor Cameron shared a story with us about a young man who informed his mother that if she didn't vote the way he wanted her to, he was going to disown her. What do you tell people that are that divided? Or have you already given me the answer? Step back. Well, I mean, one thing uh, that would be, I mean, step back. But with somebody that has said that, what I would, I, and I often, sometimes I do this as an exercise for people. I'll say, okay, now what I want you to do, because uh, I am a therapist, is visualize what your life would be like without your mother. What would it be like in terms of your grandchildren? What would it be like in terms of your spouse um, at the end of her life? What would it be like if she knew she never had an opportunity to speak with and come to terms with and come to peace with her own son? How would you feel if you were in a dire and dangerous situation and you did not have that? I mean, it's it's very fascinating. Um, uh, a friend of mine um, who uh, is the developer of the uh, the system called time banking, um, uh, a, a wonderful a wonderful lawyer um, who talked. I did a presentation for a uh, uh, for an, um, a medical school, and for the medical school, he asked his students um, who provides the greatest amount of health care in America. And, of course, people came up with doctors or nurses or PAs or whatever they wanted to say. And he said, no, the answer is mothers. Because the fact is, in the beginning of your life, if your mother had not taken care of you and put clothes on you and fed you, um, you'd be dead within a few minutes in terms of being born and then within the first 10, 15 years of your life. So there's there's got to be a way in terms of education that we we uh, need to explain to people these very primary relationships and how important they are. And if we understand those, if we get the understanding of unconditional love, which doesn't necessarily mean that you'll get along with your mother. Your mother might have attitudes that you don't like the whole time. But at the same time, what you need to realize is the closing the door um, creates harm on both sides. 
when we don't understand unconditional love and the importance of love as the critical factor in civility, the critical factor in living and action, if we do not understand that at the most basic of levels, then it becomes impossible to talk to someone across the street. Amen. There is a meme out there, uh, Robert, among young people today that I've heard now more than once from several I've had conversations with that essentially says or goes like this. I don't owe them anything. I did not ask to be born. They decided to bring me into the world. They owe me. They are responsible for seeing that I'm cared for. Uh, that's what the laws of the land say. They should take care of me, pay for my education, da-da-da-da-da. If they show me respect, I'll return that respect. What say you to that? Um, well, <laughs> hold your answer. We have a heartbreak in front of us in about 30 <laughs> seconds. When we come back. I, I, I'll give you a chance to try that one on, all right? As a therapist, a counselor, or a father. <laughs> yeah. We're speaking with Robert Sachs about his work and book, The Path of Civility. It is a great read. Again, I don't bring people to the radio show that I don't think have something important to share. You can learn more about our guest and his book by visiting thepathofcivility.com. As one word, thepathofcivility.com. Okay, do please stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Change has never been easier. Whether you wish to lose weight, stop smoking, build better relationships, become creative, enjoy ultra prosperity, or simply relax and promote self-healing, InnerTalk has been repeatedly demonstrated effective in the most rigorous of scientific studies. Our customers love InnerTalk. Sean wrote, I have struggled with bulimia for over 30 years and have never been able to lose weight without restoring to it until I used InnerTalk. Vicki wrote, My hubby has been using the Stop Snoring CD and already his dangerous and raucous snoring levels have stopped. Celeste wrote, I recently graduated from Taft Law School with honors. I'm writing to tell you how much your InnerTalk CD, Excel in Exams, has helped me. With over 300 titles to choose from, there is something for everyone. Check it out today by going to InnerTalk.com. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Alvin Taylor. Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're chatting with Robert Sachs about his work and book, The Path of Civility. You can learn more about our guest and his book by visiting thepathofcivility.com. A subtitle on that book is Perfecting the Les Lessons of a President by Applying the Wisdom of Buddha. And it's really a very well-done book. The president happens to be George Washington. I didn't know he'd written a book on civility, but he did. And uh, what he had to say is just as applicable today as it was back then. All right. Every week we ask our guests for their favorite music. 
music that has some real meaning to them. Music psychology is a field of research with practical relevance in many areas and a hobby of mine. Now, Robert, your chosen music is hurdy-gurdy man. So please tell us, why is this music important to you? And more importantly, how does it inform us about who you are? Well, um, I, I, was, I would say my adulthood was, uh, um, I, I was raised an adult in England. And Donovan was one of the artists that was there. Um, my, um, my father-in-law had an opportunity. He worked for the coal company, he used to collect money from Donovan out in the woods outside of uh, London. And um, the hurdy-gurdy man, the, the one lyric that is there, uh, I mean, Donovan was actually very close to the Beatles when the Beatles were doing their exploration with Maharishi and in India. I didn't realize, in fact, that it is said that uh, Donovan taught John Lennon really how to play guitar. Um, but this one song, Hurdy Gurdy Man, has that one uh, one portion of the lyric, history of a... a uh, um, History of ages past, unenlightened shadows cast down throughout eternity, the crying of humanity. And to me, what it is, is that uh, the, the idea of enlightenment, the idea of waking up, has been something which is a theme in every wisdom tradition that there is. And at the same time, what we see is that the, uh, and, and this is in keeping with the uh, the teachings of the historical Buddha said that there are five basic families of beings, um, most of them wallow in some level of, of self-absorption or self-centeredness. And there's only one of the families that really understands the interconnectedness that we all uh, are a part of. And uh, the idea is that the number of people that really want to wake up is as many as there are stars that shine during the day. So to me, uh, this, this, these lyrics of Donovan really talk about the challenge. And I remind people this all the time when they think of government officials or they think of things that are going on in their community and they're shocked by what people do. And then I think of the teachings of the Buddha, which it might sound, it might, might sound depressing in that way, but the optimistic aspect of it is everybody has the potential to wake up. Then the question becomes, how much are you committed to supporting others and waking up? And to me, that's the only job, and that's what I've devoted my life to. That's cool. That's, that's a nice story. All right, I gave you a meme just before we went to break. The child who says, I didn't ask to come into this world. You brought me in. I'm not your toy. You owe me. What's your answer? Well, I mean, uh, we get back to some very fundamental basics of of, um, of education and of understanding the world. Because um, you could actually go deeper uh, to that in, in the Buddhist world. The idea is um, when you have a particular karma, you actually get attracted to the parents that match the karma that you are. And therefore, you... Um, you are being compelled to be reborn, and there is a Kmart blue light special of your mom and dad going at it, and you get an opportunity to rush there and be part of the game. So there's really three participants, and for you to think 
that you are just brought in is just kind of an erroneous way of thinking. I mean, in many respects, what I would say is there's so many levels of, of metaphysical and esoteric wisdom, which actually, I would say, would be useful for us to be taught gradually throughout our entire lives. And right now, I would say, sadly, what's going on is we have been um, cotton-wooling people to the point of becoming anesthetized, to being able to really pay attention in their world. I mean, we constantly, I was listening to the description of your book. It is the, 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 the age of perpetual distraction. And so what happens is um, we, uh, we, get, we get moved by the next shiny object. And what happens is those who understand that we get moved by the shiny object keep on creating new shiny objects to present us with much to their own, um, uh, to, to basically make it so that they become wealthier and more powerful. And it's sad. It's very, very sad. And it has not changed. I mean, we realize that uh, in many respects, you know, you had the, I mean, all you have to do is watch any historical, read historical books or hear what people have done to each other. This is um, history of ages past. It's going, it is going on. And the question, I think what's very fascinating at this point, and this is the other aspect of, um, when I wrote, I wrote a book called uh, Be um, Becoming Buddha and then one called Wisdom of the Buddhist Masters. And one of the interviews had to do with this being actually a time period where the veil is lifted, where a lot of people are seeing things in a much more raw and visceral way than they ever have done. And in many respects, one of the lines I like to tell people is, we all know what's going on. We just agree not to blow each other's cover. We feel it. We feel it. And to me, what it is, is the amount of medication someone uh, is on. I mean, let's put it this way. Um, we know what's going on. And to live in denial of what is going on, to uh, you have to take an incredible amount of medication or be on drugs. That's the only way in which you can deny what is in front of you. And that's why I think that the epidemic we have in terms of pharmaceuticals in this country, as well as recreational drugs, has to do with the fact that heaven is knocking on our door more loudly than it ever has done in our, in our lives, possibly in the history of our civilization. There is a knocking on the door of us needing to wake up. And so what happens is the more we deny that, the more we just have to numb ourselves out. Yeah, you know, in that vein, and I, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on this because I want to get to more importantly to your book. But uh, our education, our higher education systems today, and I've had several professors on the show from places like Yale, you know, the elite, uh, um, to, you know, the UC uh group of schools, um, they're aimed largely, or, or there is an a, a element, I should say, admitted element of indoctrination, and that indoctrination is secular in nature. So when you, when you attempt to appeal 
to some metaphysical or spiritual kind of uh, of notion, it's immediately dismissed by most of these young people today. They have imbibed in the secular nature of, you know, what Sigmund Freud will say, you're a social worker, Uh, religion is a sugar-coated neurotic crutch, and dockings the god delusion so you 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 end up with some difficulty taking that path towards people the buddha taught a middle path what is that middle path in an instance such as this that that middle path is understanding that i mean it's a question of 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 under understanding our connection to what is around us. It is about having an understanding that we have to take responsibility in our own lives, but that doesn't mean that we are the be-all and end-all of all things. That we, and it's an important understanding that we need to, to, to get to in our education of our participation and the effects of our actions on others. We need to be more aware of that. And to do that, we need to realize that we need better education. We need to be able to contemplate. We need to be able to develop more effective forms of of communication. But all of those are based on an understanding of this, what I describe in another book, as our ecology of oneness. And if we do not get that, and if we then deal with our sense of, ter- uh, a friend of mine who works in drug treatment used to talk about us suffering from terminal uniqueness. And therefore, what ends up happening is that, I mean, a good example of that is rather than uh, being able to compete playing basketball in some of the young leagues for uh, in, in, in communities, uh, I've seen I've seen communities get rid of scoring. So nobody feels like someone is lost and someone is won. that someone gets a trophy for showing up to a meeting rather than doing something at a meeting. Amen. So we have a way in which we have been essentially on not sort of helping people to grow up. And in many respects, I would say, I mean, I have a friend who once said the dumbest people he ever met were the people that get PhDs in education. (laughs) In a recent blog, sir, you stated, show nothing to your friend that might affright him. Yes. Are you encouraging people to hide their political views then? Uh, Because if you are, it seems that what you just said uh, about, you know, let's just give everybody a trophy. There are no winners. There are no losers. That's kind of political. Does that make you an activist? Are you are you following your 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 own words? Flesh that out for us. Well, for one thing, what it is, and, and I'll, I'll, let me clarify this: uh, Washington, uh, when he was looking at the the, uh, the rules of civility, these were from a book that had been written a couple hundred years before him. But he held these. I mean, he actually Washington was rather poorly educated. Uh, he only got an eighth grade education, but these rules of civility were something that he read when he was very young, and he stuck to them. And really, what it's what made him a very effective 
political leader. Now, when he mentions that one particular thing, it has to do with sometimes uh, there is something that is of, of shock value. When you need to confront people, when you need to wake people up, uh, when you need to, in some ways, make it so that you ruffle ruffle your feathers, because the world isn't always good, good. Sometimes good is lancing boil good. And you need to basically lance some kind of concept, some kind of idea or whatever, which can be painful. That is understood. But in the long run, in terms of civility, once that has happened, then there needs to be a way in which you go, okay, now that you understand this point, how can we work together? So there can be the necessity, and that is not a civil act to do, but it is a very strategic thing that needs to happen before a more, quote-unquote, civil, civil tone is enacted. And even in terms of civil tones, a civil tone can be confrontational. One can disagree with someone vehemently without necessarily running them down or insulting them or degrading them. It is possible to do that. And that's where, where you look at effective civil disobedience that doesn't break into anarchy. So, okay, civil disobedience. In your book, Buddha at War, you encourage activism. And some of your readers are pretty critical of both your point of view and your use of Buddha's teachings to advance this sort of activism. What say to you to those critics? Well, what was wonderful is when I wrote the, the book, The Buddha at War, uh, became um, titled Becoming Buddha, mainly because of the fact that a publisher, the publisher was getting pressure from the very politically correct Buddhist community that they didn't like the term Buddha and war in the same title. They didn't like the words close together. My particular teacher, who was a Tibetan teacher by the name of Kunzig Shamarimpache, looked at the title and said, wow, that's a really smart title. Go with that. Do that. And in many respects, what it is, is that um, with respect to religion, with respect to morality, um, and I look at this in all sorts of organizations that talk about the importance of, of practicing morality and being civil and whatever. It's like, uh, in many respects, the devil is in the details. Once we decide that we are going to want to um, see a change and we, we want to act in the most civil way possible, we realize that anything in this relative world is going to have a positive side, a negative side. Those people are for it. Those people that are going to be against it. And so to me, how you test civility is in how well you can manage the pros and cons, the front and back, the lines in the sand. All that kind of stuff is where it needs to happen. And if it is not tested that way, then it's just like having a cup of tea and having niceties and not really doing a whole lot in the world. All right, let's test that theory just a little bit. George Washington was a slave owner. Yes. And, you know, hey, everybody wants to take down all the monuments. And uh, so what is your response to people right now 
who are critical about the history of the United States, including George Washington, and want to see these monuments of him and other United States monuments removed? Well, I mean, I've, I've watched some of the what's happened uh, with, 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 in some ways with sadness. I mean, others were put up in various strategic places just to rub uh, post-Civil War reconstruction in people's faces. It was done to intimidate, and I understand that. But to me, I get really worried when you try to airbrush history. Basically, uh, in, 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 in the Buddhist tradition, you have something called namtar, or sacred biography. And to me, a sacred biography is when you airbrush people to the point where they then become some kind of divine, untouchable thing. We have to realize that the Buddha walked out on his wife and his kid. He was a deadbeat dad. Yeah. All right, we have to understand that. And if we don't understand that and what it takes to finally make a courageous step, in the case of Washington, definitely slavery was part of what was going on in the culture that he lived in in the South. That's what was there. He was a part of landed gentry. He couldn't not be a part of that landed gentry. Maybe, maybe he could have been. I do not know. But what many of these men knew was that something had to change, and they were very well aware of the fact that if we were going to create a more perfect union, we couldn't do it by challenging all these things that had gone on and had made all this money and stuff like that. But there's always a price to be paid. What we did was, by not really addressing that earlier on, we had to pay dearly in terms of blood and treasure later on. There's always going to be a consequence to these things. And the, the issue then becomes, how prepared are you for the consequence that will come? So if I understand you correctly, you're opposed to taking down uh, these statues. Have I got that right? I would say where they have done, been done. I mean, I think what people need to do is look at where and how they were done. So, for example, in the case of Washington and Washington Monument, it really would be like, okay, all we are doing now is judging this man on the basis of, the basis of one aspect of who he was. And that is, I mean, we look at that all the time right now in terms of politics, where somebody that is now more progressive in their attitude was rather right wing or reactionary when they were in high school or in early days in college. And suddenly someone's reading a, uh, uh, an essay that they wrote when they were a sophomore in college and imputing that that's what their attitude is. Everybody grows. Everybody changes. And so to me, I, I accept the fact that, yeah, was it great that many of the wealthy men of, of this country had slaves at the time? No, it was not. But it was the culture that they found themselves in. And then I have a question as to how were these people treated, et cetera, et cetera. Maybe that's irrelevant because they were slaves. And I understand that. But... I think we need to always put any reaction we have in the context of history. If we don't, then what we do is we bludgeon people to make a change. And in the end, and we are seeing that. Actually, what I would say is some of the reactivity in this 
probably made it so that there were more people that voted in a more reactionary way in this election because they did not, they, they for whatever reason, they cherished, you know, a, a statue in a town that they loved. And that was part of what they always grew up. And maybe they used to picnic underneath that statue. And they never really thought about what the statue meant. And so someone tears it down angrily and suddenly a play area for the kids is gone. And they're not even thinking of what the story of the person was anymore. They're just aware of the violence that just happened now. And so they react. And so we need to be more conscious of that. It doesn't mean that things shouldn't change. And a lot of things need to change right now in this culture. But the idea that what we can do is deny history and airbrush it to make it so that we now have the version that we want, I think is very, very misguided, and it will not generate civility. I happen to agree with you, Robert, for what it's worth, but okay. Now, in about a minute and a half that we have left, how do we... How do we live our lives now? I mean, how do we use the information that you've shared with us to improve our lives? What is it that we should do first? I mean, is there some common message inherent to Washington Buddha and Robert Sachs that can just give me a, this is where I begin. This is what I do today. Well, what I would say is that, um, I mean, I, I've been, been involved with studying Buddhism for so many years that in many respects, the practices and the way in which I've been around these teachers for years has rubbed off on me. And I feel like it has taught me to be a more compassionate, understanding and, and reflective person. I think that's very, very important that every person, uh, when they begin to have doubts and begin to do a, a serious um, assessment of themselves, that they uh, that this helps. And this helps to grow us up. With respect to uh, Washington, this was something new to me. I mean, I'm, I'm a Freemason. Uh, in terms of knowing about Washington, to know that this, this one being who was historically significant in the country that I live really was successful in terms of his diplomacy in understanding what needed to happen to move this country forward and not become a king himself was to understand and be able to interact with people in a way that was civil and on the level. So to some extent, we need to step back. We need to reflect. We need to treat people with mutuality. That quality of mutuality, I think, is the real key. All right. Robert, we are out of time. The book is The Path of Civility. It is a great read, perfecting the lessons of a president by applying the wisdom of the Buddha. I want to thank you for sharing your work and experiences with us today, Robert, and we wish you the best in your endeavors to come. All right, we've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank all of you out there for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show and will join us again next week, same time. And do have your friends join us as well. All right, until next time, wherever you are in the world, remember, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. 
If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at eldentaylor.com.